Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Henning Trooper, author of Orientalism, Philology, and the Illegibility of the Modern World, published in 2020 by Bloomsbury Academic Press. Welcome to New Books in Language, Henning. Um, Yeah, thank you. Hello. Well, thanks for joining us. So your book focuses on philology, on reading, and its relationship to scholarly knowledge, and in particular in the history of Orientalism. So Let's start out, and if you can just give us your book's argument in a summary form before we unpack it, the first question, uh, and then second, why did you think this was an important book to write? Yeah, um, so my basic starting point was to, to look into the history of reading as a scholarly method. Um, this may be a somewhat strange question, uh, but it has to do with my background, which is very much in something like science, or history of science, or history of the humanities, maybe as a field that is, uh, however, only emerging at the moment, one could say, in some regards, at least. And um, from the point of view of this field, um, the question of what is the characteristic for the humanities is, uh, is quite important, and uh, reading being the primary method of, uh, you know, dealing with text and producing knowledge about text is clearly the the core method of a large swath of humanities fields, namely the so-called philologies. Um, But it's a peculiar question uh, how reading can be a scholarly method, um, because uh, ultimately there's many modes of reading and uh, basically everybody who is alphabetized uh, in a language and knows a language can participate in reading, right? Um, so the, the ambition of trying to, to create uh, something like a science out of, uh, out of the method of reading is something that intrigued me quite a lot. Um, this also has to do with the historical situation of the philologies. There is a, a conundrum in the history of the philologies that has to do with um, the period of around 1800. Basically, uh, after that, philologists seem to think that they have done something decisively new. Uh, but it's really hard to uh, to evince that uh, that conviction from just looking at what they do in practice, because the the toolkit of uh, philologies didn't really change very much. Right? It changed somewhat gradually, um, and um, it's it's just uh, quite puzzling what really what really happened there. So that was the the thing that I wanted to look at. Um, now the argument of the book is quite uh, quite complex in a way. Um, It says something about um, what happens with this ambition um, and uh, how the ambition is uh, thwarted, basically how it self-sabotages, so to speak, but also about the consequences that it generates. And uh, it ends up saying something like uh, that uh, even a lot of features of current uh, practices in the humanities um, are still quite in line with what uh, happened in this period and within the uh, kind of series of of, uh, epistemic situations that I'm looking at in the book. So there is a sort of, it's a story of um, 
in the sense of being stuck. Um, but I think that's quite uh, quite interesting as such. Um, it's a condition that we're not getting out of, right? So that's that's a little bit the idea. This this notion of the illegibility of the world. The world is not, after all, the text that we can simply you know that, that we can devise a method for for figuring it out definitively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, we'll we'll get to talk about that. Uh, that even though the book is certainly focused on a particular. Uh, period of time in the past, it you, you draw draw thread lines up to the the current moment in moments in the in the humanity. So we'll we'll definitely want to unpack that a little bit. But l- let's let's back up a little bit and ask how you came to be interested in the topics in the book and in Semitic Orientalism in particular. You mentioned you have background in uh, it sounds like uh, the history of uh, science. So how how did this book come about? Yeah, I mean, it ultimately, um, it really started with a sort of embarrassment after I had finished my doctoral thesis, which was about uh, uh, historical writing and the history of that, and uh, specifically about practices of writing as uh, as uh, being significant in this uh, context. And it occurred to me after I'd finished that book that I hadn't really looked at reading very much at all. And that seemed like a, like a drastic omission, so to speak. So I became interested in reading. And uh, then rather quickly, I moved to uh, looking at, uh, well, philology as being the fields uh, where reading is, in a sense, the most uh, important and the most is invested in reading. And um, from there, it was just another step to then move to Orientalism. Uh, This had to do with the debate that was ongoing at the time about global philology and about the question of, um, you know, the global history of scholarship in a way, how it's... uh, tied up with uh, epistemologies of empire and these kinds of questions. And um, it seemed to me quite important to figure out arguments also in this, uh, in this connection, um, to figure out arguments that um, do not separate the sort of methodical core from uh, the sort of political distortions that would then come maybe in the 19th century. And I felt the debate that was taking place at the time had a little bit of a tendency to do that. Um, so um, in a sense, the ambition there was to, to develop then some, some kind of argument that, was, uh, that, that cuts deeper, so to speak, from an epistemological point of view uh, to show connections between you know, imperial habits, so to speak, and, uh, and you know, practices of scholarship. That, that are really very, very uh, at the core of, uh, of philology. So that was a little bit the motivation to move uh, to, to Orientalism. And then there is, of course, another step to take to, to study Semitics. Um, so the study of Semitic languages such as Arabic, uh, Hebrew, uh, Aramaic, Syriac, um, and several Ethiopian languages, actually. <clears throat> and, um, and this decision partly had to do with the archives I actually uh, found and partly with the fact that, uh, well, there's in, in German Orientalism, which I also sort of made a decision to study in this context, uh, there's basically two big fields in the 19th and also in the 20th century, uh, which is, uh, <clears throat> on the one hand, it's yeah, Indology, the study of India, or really mainly of Sanskrit traditions, and uh, the, the uh, study of Semitic languages. So, I, I, yeah, that's how I ended up deciding on the Semitics. I mean, there is a, a lot of stuff that comes into the study of Semitics that has to do with the history of the Bible, the deconstruction of the Old Testament in particular, 
that I found very fascinating. So yeah, right. So and then the the motivation you were talking about the global philologies was this. There's a I think an edited volume uh, with Sheldon Pollock and others. Is that part of the conversation? Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, um, and it seemed to me that it was, yeah, I mean, one could do more on the side of uh, European philology precisely within the uh, the period of uh, of high imperialism, so to speak, that there is actually a lot more stuff going on than, uh, yeah, than, than had, been, had been started and had been part of the debate. I mean, it's also, of course, that wasn't really their, their objective, right? They, they wanted to, uh, to look at other practices, uh, but I think it ends up um, sort of presenting a, a picture of European philology that uh, isn't isn't sufficiently nuanced, maybe. Yeah. Well, so let's dig in then, uh, and and I'll start with a question that's may uh, may seem a little bit uh, basic, uh, but I think it maybe fits with the theme of the book because you're writing a book about reference and to, as well. It's talking about semantics. It's talking about names, proper names, uh, and about how people have used language as well as studied language, just to put it roughly. So. What does philology mean? Often we start out by defining terms. What what does philology mean? What is the, what is this study called philology? Uh, maybe we could start a little bit with Nietzsche, Deman, Jakobson, and others that you you talk about in the in the book. So we'll, let's start there. How do you understand philology? Yeah, I mean philology. Of course, etymologically, it's it's a word that actually already occurs in, in ancient texts. It's about the you know, the philia of uh, logos, you know, which is the love for words, but also the love for, for thinking, so to speak. Um, and it's actually a practice that already exists in ancient scholarship too, which uh, has to do with, uh, you know, ancient work on the meanings of terms in Homer and these kinds of things. And uh, so there is a long, long, long tradition of uh, of interpretations of philology and practice. Um, so it's really hard to define the term, right? Um, and um, in the 19th century, um, there is a sort of um, attack on philological practice, in particular in, in the context of the German reform university, meaning at this time a university that is primarily devoted to, to scholarly research. And uh, the philologists are getting attacked for basically producing a, you know, a mishmash of knowledge, uh, something that is, uh, that is not unified at all, it's not coherent, it's all kinds of things, it's, it's basically just an aggregate, as, as they're being told. And in response to that, they try to develop a theoretical foundation for their field. Um, this is in particular people like Friedrich August Wolf and August Böck in, uh, yeah, in the sort of Halle-Berlin context. Um, who try to, to then create a science of antiquity, as they call that. And Berg defines the foundation of philology as being the understanding of that which has been understood previously. Right? So it's about studying the activities of the human mind in the past, which is a very broad definition. Um, but the important thing is, to begin with, A, there is a definition, and uh, B, um, it's a definition that... Uh, orients the kind of knowledge that philology needs to produce toward something like reference, right? So it's about um, uh, reality as represented in language because it is about something that has been understood. And uh, I think this is, uh, this is a 
really of great importance for, for philological study in the 19th century. Um, it's a definition that everybody learned who studied um, philology in a German university. Uh, this is a, something that was always taught by, by classics professors and more specifically by Greek professors. They had the monopoly of teaching the theory of philology, interestingly. And... Um, and uh, then you can see um, everybody reacting to this later on. Um, the um, yeah, so the, this is one of the chapters of books actually studies this this trope of a return to philology uh, from uh, Edward Said and Podemann backwards uh, through Nietzsche and uh, back to these early philologists of um, yeah, of the world, so to speak as represented in language. Of course, it was immediately controversial, right? You cannot actually come up with a definition and expect it to not be controversial. So, of course, other people were saying, uh, well, no, this is this is uh, impossible because it, uh, it increases the... Um, the let's say the pertinence or the purview of the of the discipline. You know, we cannot study everything. Right? We have to stick to, to classics. Uh, so we stick to the, to the canon of texts that we have. And it's really about figuring out the meanings of those texts and forget about all the rest, because otherwise everybody will come and claim their own philology. That's uh, one of the main opponents of Augustberg says. And that's, of course, exactly what happens. This is how the Orientalists are actually uh, extremely important, because they uh, enter the scene and they completely blow up the, um, the kind of worlds that actually can be represented in language. There's suddenly so many worlds and so many different conceptions of the world. Uh, that this entire that the, that the unity of the definition, so to speak, is is uh, destroyed in practice. Right? But since the since the Greek scholars have the monopoly of interpreting the formula, this never actually enters a sort of theoretical debate. And so there's a complete uh, disjunction of theory and practice, which is quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's that's the the focus, of course, in 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 the book. And one of the the themes that is running throughout it uh, is that. You're, you're arguing about the importance of proper names in this understanding of philology, uh, philological methods as um, as referential. But then you also have this um, this claim that that philology itself, the term philology, functions as a, a proper name and as a personal name. Can you expand on that a little bit? I think that's an important point in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, it seemed to me that the um, the well, the meaning of philology is really that of a name of a discipline to begin with, and um, its uh, its reference is uh, extremely contested, right? So, in, in a sense, they're reproducing the uh, the condition of their theoretical argument within the very uh, uh, um, yeah within the very process of of uh, arguing that argument, right? Um, I don't know if that's uh, that's uh, really clear, <laughs> but uh, so there's a sort of feedback loop that actually uh, happens there with uh, with the names. Um, the, uh, the 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 importance of names, of course, being that uh, as uh, the the you know the prime example of uh, of singular terms, uh, they are clearly referential, uh, defined by the reference. So that's why everybody always comes back to names um, because they do want to talk about reference because they do want to talk about what has been previously understood of the world. Right? 
But then as, as you point out, there's, uh, I guess this is the analytic philosopher in me, I, I noticed the, the, the reference to, to Frege, and I thought this, this was a nice point that you were, you were arguing that the, it's not just the extensional aspect of naming this important, but the intentional, the sort of uh, manner in which one understands the referent. Uh, and I think this seems to be one of the, again, one of the themes in the book that you're unpacking at a few levels. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. I mean, the um, and that's that's why the names are then also so flexible. I I mean, they're all of course not really Freudian, so they they don't really differentiate between intention and extension quite to the extent that, from a logical point of view, one would maybe like them to. Um, yes, but uh, I think I mean the, the the semantics of naming within the discourse of the nineteenth century they're really interesting precisely because they don't conform to these kinds of uh, standards that one would bring to it from a, from a contemporary philosophy of language point of view. Um, because uh, they even think that something like uh, being actually is a name, right? Um, so, which, which is outlandish in a certain sense, but uh, you could also <clears throat> actually go with it and then find really quite fascinating things. And this is, of course, a more intentional uh, yeah, discussion of name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll get into when we talk about um, the um, epigraphic work and uh, the names for God. We can we can kind of return to this theme, but again, let's let's maybe set out a little bit more of the context here. So, in the first chapter of the book, you you set out, for instance, some important key players in the book: uh, Sebastiano Tempanaro, uh, Karl Lachmann, and others. Um, and, and these are some of the people whose conceptions of philology you're interacting with in the book. Uh, and maybe for our listeners who don't know, can you uh, explain who these people are and why it's important to understand their approaches to philology and where they, they maybe have gone off track? Yeah, I wouldn't even say, well... Maybe not gone, gone off, off track. track uh, but, yeah. Uh, and there's a, exactly, so this is, uh, I was, uh, I guess I got distracted. I was mentioning it earlier a little bit about the many meanings that philology has had over the period of its uh, existence and of the period of its of its being interpreted. Um, and of course, one of its core practices is, um, is basically the, uh, the editing of texts. And uh, there are a lot of, um, a lot of interpretations of uh, philology that actually focus uh, primarily on uh, what you do in order to edit a text. And so this argument of uh, Sebastiano Timpanaro, who was a mid-20th century Italian scholar, uh, recurs, and this is sort of a classical argument that is uh, about the, the genesis of Lachmann's method, as he calls it. Lachmann is a sort of token of, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the father of modern philology in sort of the kind of legendary accounts that exist in many uh, theological disciplines. He was a Greekist as well as a Germanist in the early 19th century, uh, notorious for, well, not well known for doing an edition of the, uh, of the New Testament, actually, um, of the Greek text, uh, and of um, also of the uh, Middle High German epic literature. So he has actually a very important uh, role in German literature as well. And uh, Lachmann's method consisted of uh, coming up with a so-called stemma. So try to find all the existing copies of a text and then uh, with a sort of set of ingenious philological arguments and conclusions establish which one is the oldest available version and which version derives from which other version and so on and so forth. 
And so you get a pedigree and uh, you can approximate the original text in this way. And this has uh, been a sort of a core, the definition, core understanding of logical practice um, over a long period of time. And Tim Panaro was really the one to point out that actually this has uh, early modern roots that um, that stretch back to Erasmus, basically. It's uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam uh, and his Bible edition, his edition of the New Testament that, uh, that sort of established this uh, tradition. But uh, what Timpanado doesn't seem to, uh, to take into account very much is the uh, fact that there is also another kind of uh, philology uh, in the handling of text that doesn't actually aim to reconstruct the earliest version, but really aims to deconstruct a given text um, and leave no original version in place. This is uh, especially what happens to the Old Testament during the 19th century. It's uh, what happened to the Homeric epics at the end of the 18th century, where they're basically uh, arguing that there is no single author of this. And um, it's, um, this is a method that actually goes back also to the, to the Renaissance period, where one has um, the very famous, uh, another father figure of philology, right, Lorenzo Valla, who um, deconstructed the so-called donation of Constantine to show that the language used in it was clearly not ancient um, and so delegitimized the idea that Constantine, the uh, late antiquity, uh, the emperor who founded the, well, the, the, the state church, so to speak, of the Roman Empire, uh, <clears throat> uh, gifted the empire to the church. Right? And so you have these very long lines of tradition and the, the kind of uh, choice of these kinds of father figures. So it always gets attached to names. Let me tell you the names. And, um, and uh, basically then these, these fathers get replaced, right? Um, and uh, earlier instantiations get forgotten and so on and so forth. Um, so this is and, this uh, is Timpanaro's uh, approach that you're trying to uh, you're trying to give another perspective that he's he's missing in his his history of philology. Yeah, that's um, that's basically the idea there. Yes, although I mean, in a sense, he's of course part of the same story, mm -hmm. right? And uh, as such, is an interesting example also of how these uh, how these arguments work. Yeah. Yeah. So let's um, let's talk about the end of the first chapter. So one of the things that the book does, with, uh, I think, which is nice, is it you have these kind of case studies where where you you give examples. Uh, you're you're dealing with travel literature. You're dealing with grammars. You're dealing with a lot of different uh, material in in the book. And in the end of the first chapter, you look at this case study of uh, of Arab grammar. Uh, and the relationship between European and Arab grammarians. And as you characterize this, uh, this situation, it seems like you think this is, this is something that can help us understand uh, this kind of emphasis on referential meanings and the attempted maybe unification of a, of a method, of an empirical method. Uh, but at the same time, we have a certain attitude towards the Arab grammarians themselves. So can you explain, I, I know there's a lot going on here, but can you explain this mm -hmm. case to our listeners? Uh, what's the conflict here? What lessons can we draw from it? 
Right, so I mean, the primary aim of that subchapter is within the uh, context of this overall question of what is the defining thing, the, the core project, so to speak, of, uh, of 19th century philology. This, one has to say something about grammar because, of course, grammatical study might be regarded as a, as a competitor to the thing that I'm saying is the core thing, namely semantics, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the idea was to look at that um, and to find a, basically a line of argument that uh, relates the semantic argument to the grammatical argument. That's a connection that's been made. I'm not sure that I can reproduce mm -hmm. it in its entirety here. Sure, it's, of course, <laughs> be, of course. It might be a bit tricky, but I mean, the case of Arabic grammar is, is utterly fascinating, actually, from a historical point of view, because it is one of those cases where uh, there is actually um, a, a tradition of grammar within the language that uh, also European scholars felt uh, unable to ignore for a long time. And so there are basically different kinds of grammatical study that are directed to this, and they take uh, the Arab grammarians um, into account in different ways. Um, the reason, of course, for why there is this uh, intensive uh, study of grammar in Arabic is Quranic language, which was hard to understand for uh, native speakers of Arabic already in something like the 8th uh, century uh, CE. And um, also because, of course, it was uh, being... Um, yeah, well, being passed on to, to people who weren't actually native speakers of that language. Right? So there's a lot of, uh, of uh, scholarship going on, and of course also subsequent scholarship, but of course the European scholarship is only interested in the earlier period, so that's one of, the, one of the points that somebody like Pollock would of course very much emphasize is the importance of the sort of the middling scholarship and the leaving out of that that, uh, that characterizes European scholarship. But um, it's also true that uh, the uh, the European scholars ultimately abandon more and more the uh, the study of these Arab grammarians because it's very unwieldy as a literature that just tries to systematize the language and to make it teachable in a sort of systematic way that well where the system is basically taken from uh, grammars of Latin and Greek and so there's a there's a, yeah there's a, a lot of uh, stuff going on a lot of history going on in this in this field mm -hmm. a very very interesting case study yeah yeah and so there's the nice uh, again, there's there's a lot going on in the, the the book, and so I think in our conversation, um, pointing to some of the lessons and uh, some of the the generalities of the history, which of course you can, um, which is in the book in much more detail. But uh, you made this comment that the the sort of normative notions of the Arab grammarians were dismissed, and that language was to be studied as a reality on its of its own. Uh, and that seems yeah. to be again one of the the underlying themes in terms of the the methodology of philology that you're unpacking here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's actually the the well, one of the lines of argument that actually sort of subordinate the study of grammar then to this idea that it's really about studying reference or semantics because the language itself becomes the referent, right? It becomes the reality that they're studying, which is an important. Uh, an important shift in a way, yeah, in the, in the basic conceptual infrastructure of what they're doing. So it's not just about teaching rules and studying rules, but it is actually about studying the language as reality. Right, as the as the object, as the as the referent, as you say. Yeah. So let's let's look at chapter two. I think we'll just continue to go in sequence here. So chapter two, uh, I mentioned that you you work also with travel literature, which is, I think, something that's fascinating about the book. 
Uh, so chapter two deals with the relationship between an Eritrean and a German philologist uh, who are working on a corpus of poetry, and forgive me if I don't pronounce this correctly, on the Tigray language. Yeah, yeah that's perfectly fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this this chapter is interesting because it moves, again, as does much of the uh, the rest of the book, moves between different levels of analysis, and you're you're looking at the relationship between uh, these these two individuals in terms of their scholarship, but you're also looking uh, at how uh, the philologist Lippmann, um, in his obituary of uh, uh, Nafawad Etman, um, how he sort of treats this individual and treats this individual's language. So there's a lot going on in, in this chapter, but maybe can you give a, just an initial introduction to who these people are? Uh, and, and what the situation is that that pulled you into thinking about them? Yes, I mean, so the book has a number of um, case studies, as you said, and Littmann is uh, one of the protagonists, so to speak, in, in two chapters that partly has to do with simply with the fact that the archives are very rich. And so I should maybe preface this by saying the book is very much a, an archival study. It uh, um, does something that is kind of novel in the field, I think, to some extent, in, in that it really spends a lot of time with these archives, um, which uh, I think a, a lot of the previous literature hadn't really you know, dared to engage with so much. So it becomes a very micro-historical sort of thing, right? Um, and it, this is really focused on the period of uh, around 1905 to 1909, and then with uh, instances of this continues over Lippmann's uh, entire life, basically the engagement with this uh, with this episode. Now, uh, this, this man Nafa was a student in a Swedish colonial mission in Eritrea. Lippmann went to Eritrea to study the grammar of Tigray, uh, which is an, in the Semitic language in the, in the area. And um, uh, Nafa was given to him as an instructor in the language. And um, he worked with him uh, together, or he worked together with him so well that he... Uh, uh, proposed to the missionaries afterwards that uh, they should send uh, Nafa to, to Germany so that he would be able to do a, a large collection of oral poetry in that language, uh, which was a concern to, to philologists of this very small field in the period. Um, and uh, this is very much in the, in the way of, you know, creating a national literature. Um, that's sort of the, the overall idea there. Um, but it's a it's an extractive process. So to speak. It's really an appropriation of the literary knowledge that Nafa possessed. He was the son of a Ratfield, so somebody who recited poetry professionally, so to speak. And um, so he was able to to give a lot of knowledge, <clears throat> but he didn't really get in return what he may have wanted. Uh, it seems that he would have wanted to stay on in Germany. Uh, to get more education and maybe uh, actually gain a position in scholarship, which was incidentally not unprecedented at the time in Germany. There were some Ethiopian scholars and, uh, uh, well, university positions and positions of language teaching and things like that. Uh, but Littmann denied him this and uh, basically forced him to return to, to Ethiopia. And, uh, well, uh, during the journey, Nafa basically jumped off the ship and disappeared. Right? Um, and this, uh, this suicide uh, generated a lot of um, fallout in a certain sense. You know, there's a lot of documents that relate to it afterwards. Um, although this is, of course, of no consequence in any, um, you know, let's say, 
juridical way or any such, such thing. And there's no no crime that has been committed in a, in a, in a legal sense, right? But uh, there is a moral crime that has been committed. And this is a quite uh, fascinating and revealing sort of uh, situation to study um, because precisely it says a lot about the, the place of um, something like uh, violence within philology as a, as a yeah, feature of the reality that it actually creates. Um, Yes, and so that was basically the idea of of, of looking at that uh, terrible case. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it is. It's um, the the chapter is quite um, uh, on a on a personal and a human level quite sad. And then, as, as you've noted, the theme of violence uh, there works in sort of two, at least two ways here. One is certainly the the violence for for Nafa and and his life. Uh, that there's the um, the I guess at least three ways here the imperial violence in in the background here or the broader violence, and then you talk about the sort of philolo- philological violence, which is maybe an extended sense of the term violence here. But uh, one of the things that you do is you talk about how, for instance, Littmann uses Nafa's words as a kind of etymological evidence in a sort of object of analysis even in his um, sort of supposed obituary for him, instead of treating them as, as utterances in, them, in themselves. And so there's a way, way in which there's a kind of um, textual violence that's being enacted in, in, a, in a range of ways. Can you talk about that a little bit? What's, what's the philological violence that's going on here? Yeah, I think the, I mean, one thing is the obituary that you mentioned, which is an unusual text because it is actually the only such text that I'm aware of in the German tradition, strictly speaking. I think it's the only time a German Orientalist has written a scholarly obituary for somebody who was in, well, sort of an outdated terminology, a native informant, right? Um, but again, I mean, he doesn't really manage to to capture the the um, the person. Um, but uh, on the on the contrary, his sense of guilt actually sort of um, deviates the, the obituary into this kind of list of, of anecdotes that he then uh, basically treats as philological evidence. Um, and of course, even the suicide itself becomes a feature of uh, of cultural patterns in the uh, in the Eritrean uh, yeah, yeah. the particular well, culture that uh, that uh, Nefer came from, right? And so there's actually a lot of objectification going on there, which has a lot to do precisely with this um, constant hunt of the philologist for the reality that the language refers to, right? for the object, basically, that's, that's uh, being, yeah, being referenced. The other kind of philological um, violence that's going on there is probably to do with the, uh, with the uh, poetry itself that... Uh, gets misread in interesting ways um, because it is actually a kind of poetry that if one looks at it, I mean, I don't speak the language, right? Um, but, I mean, Lippmann provides translations and you can see from the translations already that there is a lot of stuff going on in the poetry that is very, very referential um, in the sense that it, it, it denotes the, the very specific events and persons uh, and it has this kind of character of being a, a historical account of uh, goings on in in the area, so to speak, where the poetry is collected, that reaches back maybe a couple of decades, but is a very fluid sort of oral history knowledge. 
Um, and that part of the poetry gets written out of the interpretation. Everything becomes about, uh, you know, tribal culture, and uh, and that is the main referent here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not taken seriously as a record of history. Um, so they're basically dehistoricized, um, the poems. And um, and that is another uh, sort of... Uh, yeah, sort of form of of violence. It's a denial of history. No? Yeah, and you you contrast it. It seems the ways in which Lippmann and Nafa approach the poetry. So that that Lippmann's approach is sort of ahistorical and and a bit piecemeal, focusing on the parts and rather than than the whole. And where Nafa's uh, of course, in virtue of his position with regard to the poetry and his family uh, heritage, it's more historical and uh, sort of holistic. Uh, naming comes up again as well in these works themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? How do names appear in these pieces of poetry? Yes, I mean, they appear very much as indicators of the historicity that is actually in place, right? And um, then, of course, you have to do something to the names uh, if you want to, let's say, dehistoricize the poetry and uh, the names then become sort of more generic markers. It's quite clear, of course, that uh, even if you put this poetry in writing, uh, already that is a, uh, actually a sort of shift. Um, of the meaning of the names, because, of course, the people who actually know the reference of the names, um, who would be maybe the audience of the, the immediate audience of the poetry, uh, those people are not there to read the text. So the names actually become, uh, well, uh, almost like uh, fictitious uh, characters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, this, is, this is, I think, quite, uh, quite interesting, uh, because it also plays into the, the question of what differentiates literature and, and history. Yeah, so that's, um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and we'll see this again in, when we get to the discussion of um, epigraphy and how, how naming uh, plays a role in, in, in that study as well. So, so anything else that you want to bring out in this chapter that we haven't discussed about the Lippmann and, and Nafa? Is there anything that we've we've missed that you think is important? Well, um, I mean, there is, of course, a very long poem by the uh, by, by Lippmann's friend uh, Georg Jakob that he wrote on uh, the death of Nafa, um, which is an interesting document. Uh, I thought really quite interesting because it actually marks another way of using the practice of poetry. And so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on even with poetry as such. Um, yeah. Right, right, that's right. He, uh, he, he, uh, he's sort of borrowing from the Tigre poetry in, a, in an attempt to sort of eulogize, uh, and, and the, the chapter discusses whether, whether that's successful or, or not and how that's, that's correct. Good. Um, well, let's, Let's let's continue with with Lippmann because you talk about his work in chapter three, uh, two expeditions to Syria and Ethiopia. So, what's he what's he doing there? What's going on in these two expeditions? Right. I mean, the complicated uh, historical events. Um, so if I get into the detail, then maybe you should stop me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so the first, the expedition to Syria is actually, uh, well, Littmann worked in Princeton for a couple of years at the beginning of the, the 20th century, and there was an American expedition to Syria, actually two of them, 
that he participated in as a, a scholar of Arabic. These expeditions were mainly about classical antiquity and their remains in Syria, uh, but they also collected stuff on uh, epigraphy, that is the study of inscriptions in the Semitic languages, and they also required, uh, well, a scholar who knew Arabic uh, sufficiently to communicate with the local population. Um, which was not uh, in, initially the case of the Americans. Um, so, um, so he goes as a as in this kind of um, uh, dual role as a as a language expert and as an epigrapher. Um, and um, the um, I mean, what's interesting about these expeditions is that there's multiple diaries from various participants of the of the expedition. So you get this kind of Rashomon effect, you know, where you have different perspectives on the same event sometimes, and uh, it's, it's quite quite fascinating material as such. Even though the the expeditions are not, I mean, they're not uncommon. Syria was a was a well known parkour of expeditioning. Um, actually continue to be so until uh, the, the outbreak of the Civil War a couple of years ago. A lot of people still would go there to the same sites and collect uh, inscriptions. You know, there's just so much stuff. Um, and the collection of inscriptions is, of course, one of the core fields of uh, philology in the mode of Augsburg, where it is about collecting the, the uh, documents of lived reality um, of a culture, right? So they provide this kind of... Uh, Important historical context in a way that uh, that canonical textual heritage doesn't necessarily do because they don't, you know, represent uh, political life quite so much in the same way or uh, the life of ordinary people and so on and so forth. The Ethiopian expedition is um, something that is a little bit similar in the sense that it was sponsored by the German uh, emperor. It's uh, actually something that uh, immediately follows Lippmann's sojourn in, uh, in Eritrea. He's already in the country, so to speak, or, well, on the other side of the mountains. Um, there. And um, this is about studying the antiquities of the city of Aksum, which is um, the site of um, an, an ancient empire in Ethiopia that also has left a, a record of monuments and of uh, inscriptions. Um, and um, there is a sort of a long history of the study of these of these documents in Ethiopia, uh, in which Lippmann plays a role um, for having produced, um, yeah, the, at that time the most complete uh, account of these uh, of these inscriptions. So it's really about um, archives of inscriptions, so to speak. Now, moving back to Syria, the big discovery that he that he makes, so to speak, is uh, well, I mean, discovery in the sense of you know, really just physical documents. It's not that he discovers that that language, but I mean, there's a there's a, a, a collection of of inscriptions that are basically inscriptions by Bedouins that are on desert rocks. These are really graffiti, mm -hmm. and so that's that's one of the big things that they collect there, and. Um, Lippmann is actually the the first to fully decipher that alphabet specifically because it's in its own script. Um, yes, um, so it becomes a study of this this kind of archive of these graffiti, and they're quite different from from uh, the inscriptions of classical antiquity in a sense. Although there's of course graffiti there too, but uh, never quite in this in this manner of a you know of basically a rural population that moves freely in a countryside and just writes things on rocks right many names right, right. yeah and and i think so one of the 
guiding metaphors of this book, or sorry, of this chapter is of the sort of wildness to uh, the epigraphy and it, and it resists this attempt to do a kind of orderly science. So going back to the theme of the kind of um, methodology mm-hmm. here. So um, there's a lot going on here again, but maybe uh, one of the things to, to unpack is you say, Lippmann is able to interpret what kinds of inscriptions these are, that these are names. Uh, he's able to understand the, the script. Uh, but you say that the, the, actually the method of reading itself wasn't sort of um, regulated in a way that was, was ordered. So you talk about the, the stones being uh, moved around. You talk about identification of where things are in the site. You talk about the... Uh, so some of the the challenges in making these uh, these marks le- legible. So, can you connect this to the larger themes of the book? Yeah, I mean, so here the idea was basically to look at uh, philology also as a kind of a study of archives, you know, of basically of uh, troves of documents that are uh, passed on, so to speak, to posterity and that are actually projected into posterity, also, which is kind of important for textuality. Of this idea that it is projected into into a, a future, right? And um, the the thing is, of course, that uh, there is a lot of uh, theoretical literature on what it means uh, to study archives. That uh, basically always uh, points out things like archives selective, archives ordered, and the archive is um, yeah, it's highly structured. It has these paratexts that tell you what what kind of document you're looking at, and so on. And then with epigraphy, what you get is a, is a sort of different um, yeah, different set of conditions. Right? And this is what I refer to by this metaphor of wildness, that, uh, that they are actually very able to escape any kind of, uh, of ordering that, um, that might be imposed on them. And uh, so it's, it's an interesting thing for the, for the kind of work in the epigraphic field that... Uh, Actually, this is very often done with an audience of locals who watch uh, suspiciously as the European scholar goes through the, the inscriptions on the stones. Turns out they, the stones often have uh, local uses that are not actually reflected in the uh, in the epigraphic scholarship. Um, so, for instance, as uh, magical objects or things like that, right? So people resent the stones being studied, uh, so they often end up moving the stones, but they also move the stones just for for fun, so to speak, or, uh, you know, or they remove them for building material, right? They find a lot of these stones are actually built into into later structures as store lintels or things like that on the inside maybe of an unlit cow shed, which is one of the, um, one of the, more impressive descriptions of this epigraphic work that Lippmann gives. Um, so the stones are very mobile, um, and um, that's uh, that's a sort of motif that uh, that plagues his his work in the epigraphic field, so to speak. And um, yeah, there's a lot of actors that enter the scene that uh, one wouldn't necessarily expect. Right? They will even go to go so far as to bury a stone. Right. Yeah, and 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 I think the it, it's not just a an empty place full of stones. There are there are people here who he's 
engaging with, who he's engaging in in the work. Um, but you point out that there's a way of of understanding the inscriptions. I thought this this really struck me that, for instance, in the Aksumite uh, inscriptions, these are these are royal names, um, genealogies, and and you say that in a sense for Lippmann, it means that the past is speaking with him. Uh, and not the modern Aksumites who are involved in the expeditions. Uh, and that might seem like a familiar sort of Orientalist trope, but you also point out that there are, there are some attempts at making equality among the um, the people involved in the expedition and, and Lippmann. Can you speak to the, the social situation here? What's going on? Yes, I mean, especially the, the situation in Aksum is really very complicated from a political point of view because they come there as uh, representatives of the German emperor and they are invited by the Ethiopian emperor who wants to enter into diplomatic relations with European powers in order to protect himself from having his country invaded, especially by the Italians who were already uh, colonizing Eritrea but had lost the decisive battle 10 years earlier in um, Adwa. The... Um, the, um, and so Ethiopia stayed independent for another couple of decades before the uh, invasion of 1935, right? So it's one of those uh, very specific spaces that for a long time managed to escape uh, European um, yeah, imperialism to some extent, but this meant to make uh, certain political concessions. But of course, as the emperor in Aksum is making concessions to the Germans, um, there's also the local center of power in Aksum, which is mainly the Aksumite church. This was a Christian um, uh, dynasty and uh, partly Christian country. And um, um, the, 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 the priests, the clergy of the, of the Aksumite church really resents this expedition. They don't want Lippmann to be there. They don't want anybody to study anything, right? So um, that is, uh, at least Europeans, they don't want them there. That's the point. And um, so basically, this becomes a situation where everybody is sort of, um, <clears throat> yeah, vying for proximity to the to the monarch. Basically, this is the structuring thing that uh, that um, that shapes the relationships that they have. And so uh, Littmann has relatively cordial relations with the representative, the local governor, the representative of the of the Aksumite emperor. But this is, again, a figure who's resented very much by the local elite. Um, and uh, this has to do, of course, with uh, the Germans sort of inserting themselves into a, a social hierarchy that is actually um, yeah, a representation of, of, of the court, of the monarchical system. And uh, the, the inscribed stones as royal inscriptions also play a role in this, right? They set a stage basically for, for the court. So they come to represent the king and everybody tries to be in the situation where they're the most proximate to the king. Um, so it's really this kind of court situation that I think is really very important for um, a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of those situations of colonial encounters. Sanjay Subramaniam has written about uh, these, these sites of encounter in court as, a, as an important paradigm. And um, yeah, I believe that's that's basically what's going on there yeah. in terms of the politics of the situation. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fascinating, and again, the the ability to move between the uh, sort of narrative material you have uh, and, and the discussion of the the epigraphy itself is is really interesting in this in this chapter. But let's let's move on to chapters four and five, so we can kind of round out our discussion of 
of the book. So before we move on to uh, focusing on uh, Wellhausen, uh, 1844 to 1918. So again, let's, uh, for our listeners, let's introduce Julius Wellhausen. Who is he uh, and what is it that he's aiming for in, in the context of the chapter that you're looking at? What's, what's his goal here? Mm-hmm. Yes, so uh, Wellhausen is probably the most famous of the Orientalists studied in the book. Um, Littmann and also Georg Jakob, who's the protagonist of the last chapter, they, they are nowadays uh, not much known. Uh, Wellhausen, on the other hand, is still quite well known on account of his work on the philology of the Old Testament. He stood at the end of a line of deconstructors of the Old Testament and uh, produced the most uh, influential synthesis of this uh, about century of, of work on uh, basically di- discerning the strata that the Old Testament was supposedly made up from. And there's still a lot of people work in that field who are uh, either Wellhausenians or oppose Wellhausen synthesis, right? So that's, uh, that's very important still as a, like as a monument of scholarship, so to speak. That said, uh, outside of this field, Wellhausen is not very well known anymore. Um, <laughs> he was a somewhat iconoclastic character. He held a professorship of theology that he gave up because he felt he could not teach uh, theology responsibly to uh, uh, young men aspiring to um, the priesthood any longer. <clears throat> and then he became an Orientalist and so has this middle phase uh, of his career where he did a lot of work on the study of, uh, well, Islam, early Islam, and um, the kind of period that precedes Islam in in, uh, in Arabia, the kind of documents that exist on that, scarce as they are, and he was a very uh, important historian uh, of Islam um, and of the religious customs there. So, so Wellhausen is is con- is concerned with the again Semitic uh, literature and religion in particular. And he's interested too in a more general concern, right? He's he's thinking too about monotheistic religions. So he's not just after the particularities of uh, the Old Testament or um, Islam, right? But he's he's looking at this in a in a more universal approach. Is that correct? That's very much correct. Yes, he's he's very much at this. Well, at the center, quite close to the center, let's say, of a debate uh, at the time about the nature of religion um, that uh, is actually sort of a British, German, and Dutch debate, uh, especially with uh, people like William Robertson Smith, who's uh, probably still quite well known in the Anglophone tradition, uh, and uh, Abraham Kuhnen in the Netherlands. Uh, who are all interested in these questions of, so what do the Semitic religions uh, have actually in common? What does this mean, this monotheism, the, uh, the uh, topics of revelation? Uh, how does the society function with these kinds of things? You know, And um, they, they are actually really quite interesting and in feeding also into, into early forms of sociology at the time. So they, they are really important from an intellectual history point of view. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so you you argue in this chapter, among other things, that Wilhausen has a sort of ironizing in his understanding of reference. So you talk about how he's thinking about revelation again in a general sense here, uh, whether we're talking in Islam or Christianity or Judaism, as a deity providing its name to human beings. Uh, so how how does 
how does ironizing come out of his understanding of revelation? What does he mean by this? What's going on here? Well, yes. I mean, so he has this understanding of revelation, um, but of course he sees this also as something that uh, a modern mind cannot properly comprehend. Um, we cannot really take that seriously. It doesn't happen to us, right? He doesn't believe in it literally. And uh, I mean, it has a lot to do also with his understanding of what the nature of history is and that he believes that every history is a construction, right? He's quite modern, so to speak, uh, in, in this sense. And um, so, so basically his, his entire understanding of what he's doing is, um, is pervaded by the sense of irony. And um, it's a complicated sense of irony because it really has a lot of layers that he adds on top of one another, right? So that uh, in, in the end, you really do wonder whether, whether the, the deity is actually able to give their name to anybody. Um, so it's, uh, yes. Uh, and the, 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 the significance of this being, of course, that uh, ultimately you can say that uh, if you make an argument about reference, you can also always look at the, well, um, at the subject who's doing the referring. And... Um, Wellhausen is really very much um, a skeptic about the reference, in a sense. Um, and the, the irony is sort of the, 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 the refuge of the subject. Right? Yeah, so this, and this, I th if, if I'm tracking, this picks up on the, the debate between, um, I'm not going to get the, the German correct, but the <laughs> philology of the real and the philology of words is that is he part of this debate as well or is that orthogonal to what's going on here uh, well i mean he's part of it in the sense that he's uh, he's very much convinced that uh, philology the task of philology is really to feed into history uh, so it's really about uh, yeah studying past reality so he's a philologist of the real very much he's not somebody who says well let's just look at words you know um, and he's a bit of an enemy of the, of the pure linguists, um, but he's also an enemy of those people who actually take the reference too literally. So he lambasts the kinds of colleagues that actually around 1900 still believe that they can track authentic records of revelation. These people exist too, right? They're part of that chapter. Um, so, yes, um, I don't know. There's, there's, I think it answers the question. Right? Yeah, it? yeah, it does. Yeah. So it, even though he's after uh, the referent, the the sort of reality of the name, uh, at the same time, there's a like you're saying this sort of uh, irony or this um, sort of skepticism, perhaps, about the um, capacity that we have to to actually access that that reality. Yes. Um, the, the interesting thing about Wellhausen uh, there is perhaps just to say that, um, you know, he believes it's a historical reality, and that basically means that it's, it's, uh, it's a construction that we make, right? So the subject is really absolutely impossible to, to take out of that reality. Right. Uh, and, and so you mentioned then that his work is influential in terms of um, philosophy. So this, I, I noticed this given my my own training, which is um, which is philosophy. That you say that this Semitic philology that he's engaged of then sort of changed the landscape of philosophy, and um, it it got caught up with arguments about other things, including Jewish Gentile relations in Germany. So how does this sort of historical aspect uh, work itself out? 
Yes, I mean, the uh, the significance of Wellhausen for Jewish-Gentile relations is very, very heightened, actually, and not only on account of his personal contacts, uh, which is, I mean, one of the main partners of, uh, or interlocutors that he has is, is Hermann Cohen, actually, um, but also in terms of the question of the status of the Old Testament as such. Uh, the deconstruction of the Old Testament went on a trajectory that, uh, beyond Wellhausen, actually, uh, ended up with uh, a certain wing of the Protestant church in Germany uh, arguing for the complete abolishment of the Old Testament as a, as, a, as a text of Christianity. So this is also something that is an important uh, code of anti-Semitism as it emerges in this period. And everybody in the Semitic field in, in some way or other deals with, uh, with anti-Semitism in this period, um, often not terribly well. Mm-hmm. But, um, <clears throat> but um, still... I mean, there's a, a lot of nuance in these relations as well. Yeah. And um, the, the abolition of the Old Testament, so as well, the deconstruction of the Old Testament, uh, does become a sort of code for talking about the relations between uh, the, the, well, the Gentile majority and the Jewish minority and the status of the scholarship of the Jewish minority, of course, uh, which also changes itself under the influence of, uh, of this, these developments of philology in Protestant theology. The so-called Wissenschaft des Judentums, so the, the science of Judaism, that becomes a very dominant thing in the study of Judaism in the 19th century and the early 20th century is something that is very much a direct response, of course, to uh, yeah, to changes in philology already since the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this seems to, to be a nice uh, seg into the final chapter. Uh, another Semiticist, uh, Jörg Jakob. I'm, again, not sure about my pronunciation there. Um, and he's concerned with aesthetics and literary studies. And in this chapter, again, speaking of anti-Semitism, you draw some lines out to people like Heidegger, um, to German philosophy of the atom bomb, and, and so on. And, and, and this brings us up to the other argument of your book, which is how this uh, 19th century philology has influences for uh, sort of modern day understandings of subjecthood and theory and so on. But let's let's just start out. Who is this person in the last book, uh, chapter of the book? Uh, what is it that he is concerned with in his research? Yes, so this is uh, Georg Jakob, who's, uh, as I already mentioned, an almost forgotten figure. He's uh, normally credited to having been the founding figure of the study of Turkish in uh, Germany, but that's really just one of his uh, concerns, and there's a lot of work that he did, for instance, on Arabic as well. Um, And uh, he was a sort of um, model of the the philologist of the real um, in his time. Uh, he died in 1937. He was born in 1863, I think. And um, he um, he was a very combative scholar. There's a lot of polemical uh, interventions there, and especially in his correspondence where he's uh, entertainingly aggressive about many things. But um, <clears throat> the... Um, the the main agenda with him is really a sort of aesthetic concern. Um, and this is quite interesting as a response to this Wellhausenian irony, which is something that Jakob resented. He did not like that at all in Wellhausen. Um, and um, in a sense, the move that happens there is if uh, with Wellhausen, everything retires to the subject, so to speak, and the subject becomes the sovereign of uh, how to explain meaning, basically, as I'm, as I'm arguing in the book. 
uh, Jacob attacks a subject. Um, and that's, that's a very modernist move, so to speak. And there's a lot of stuff going on in correlations with aesthetic modernism as well um, in, in his work. He's very interested in dreams. He's very interested in the aesthetics of drama. He wants to create an aesthetics of drama where there's not so much of a focus on the uh, on the uh, actor, basically the human actor on the stage, um, which uh, he thinks is a distraction from the the work of the imagination that is actually going on uh, in the play. And so, for this reason, he becomes very interested in shadow theatre. Mm. Uh, and it's, uh, well, various manifestations across Asia as well as, uh, well, some portions of Europe. And he becomes a, a, a sort of a, yeah, a leading figure in the attempt to revive this for a little while. And then in the 1920s, he realizes that uh, actually it's the cinema that has done this this thing that he wanted to do, right? So that's, that's quite interesting on, on the on the level of these kinds of aesthetic theories of the period, that you have this direct connection. And there's also a direct connection between abstract, uh, well, abstraction and painting, for instance, and these kinds of ideas of uh, shadow theater that, that uh, Vasily Kandinsky himself establishes in Blau Reiter Almanach. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the point here is, of course, that, well, first of all, this feeds into aesthetic modernism in interesting and important ways. Um, and then second, um, it actually has a lot of theoretical ramifications because there's a lot of contiguity between the aesthetic modernism and the kind of anti-humanist theorizing that happens then after the Second World War, but beginning really in critical theory already in the interwar period. And um, um, being there, but that's, that's, of course, one of the most important uh, foundations of uh, contemporary literary theory um, through post-structuralism and, and so on, right? And there's a lot of uh, stuff also that has to do with early structuralism and the kinds of uh, studies that would be done, that, 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 yeah, that were done there. So it's a, it's a very complex sort of uh, portrayal of this uh, of this period. I think that chapter so it's, it's hard to summarize mm-hmm. all of it. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's dealing with a lot of a lot of material, and um, it, it struck me again. This is uh, out of my area of expertise, which is why I like talking to authors about their books, uh, is that you were trying to trace something um, perhaps a bit surprising, which is that uh, concerns, um, even when we're talking about things like uh, Japanese aesthetics, that we can understand these approaches um, better if we pay attention to philology in the context of studying Hebrew scripture and the Homeric ethics, that there's it's it's important to have a, a sort of a, a broader perspective on, as you put it, the world of philology in order to understand these more modernist uh, trends. Is that is that fair? Yes, very much so. I mean, the, the, it was very important to me in the end to make this connection to to representations of Japan and Japonism as a variant of Orientalism that focuses on Japan. Uh, and the, to even trace that into the kind of uh, philosophy of history that exists around the uh, the atomic age and the dropping of the atom bomb, where even there, you know, the the, the, the importance of going to the site uh, of Japan and to to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of course, and to to, to look at uh, you know the society around those sites uh, actually plays an important role for for several authors. Uh, 
and um, the um, yeah, so, so the, in, in the end, the, this needs to restate sort of the unity of Orientalism. Right? I mean, it's, I set out to study basically only this this uh, partial phenomenon, the study of Semitic languages, and really just a section of that because I did actually leave out a lot of stuff, for instance, to do with the history of religions, Islam, and so on. Islam having been, of course, one of the main fields in that uh, in that area, I basically just bypassed a, a lot of it. Um, um, partly to follow this this morphological trajectory, um, but um, yes, so the, the connectivity of it is really enormously strong, and uh, so for that reason, I, I really wanted to end with uh, something completely different, so to speak, and move this to to this Japanese side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we f- we finish up here, is there anything then in our discussion that you think was really important to bring out about the book that we haven't mentioned? No, I think, I mean, we, we've probably covered a lot of ground, uh, right? So Okay. Just, <laughs> there's certainly <laughs> plenty more to talk about, but I just wanted to make sure there wasn't a, a key a key thing that was, was left out in, in our, our going over it. So uh, this book, um, obviously, you've written it a, a couple of years ago now. So what are, what are you working on in the meantime? What are you working on currently? Yeah, I shifted fields a little bit being a, Basically, a modern historian. Um, I am um, now working on a project that has to do with the history of humanitarianism and uh, the saving of lives from shipwreck, actually, mostly on European uh, shores in the 19th century. Um, and um, it's kind of um, surprising, probably, to make that that move. Um, then again, there are actually quite a few connections on the theoretical level, at least uh, having to do with um, you know the, the topic of rescue and uh, philology actually often being about rescuing things from the past or even the past itself. So um, I, I don't see them as quite so separate as they might sound. Um, and there's also a lot of uh, stuff going on in the moral language of uh, humanitarianism that actually is quite significant for the, the history of scholarship. Right? I mean, that's maybe a topic that uh, yeah, we haven't discussed much, but I believe it has actually a lot of uh, significance for these uh, referential semantics and so on. So, um, yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Henning. And uh, the link to the book will be up, as always, on our podcast for Orientalism, Philology, and the Illegibility of the Modern World. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, thanks for yours. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks.